Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see what you'd have us learn from this. We thank you and ask the Holy Spirit to guide and lead us as we look at this last chapter in Malachi. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Malachi chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It's only six verses left, so I'm just going to read the whole thing and we'll come back and discuss each verse. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, says the shall the Son of Righteousness arise in healing in, in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked... And they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb and all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse." So here at the very end of Malachi, we're seeing a prediction of the coming of Jesus and of the last day judgment. So we're going to kind of look at some of the information that it's giving. So first one, for behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And, that it, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. This day has not been come as far as my opinion. There are some that believe that this was the judgment on Israel, that it was going to go into captivity. But it says at the very end of that verse, and they shall be left neither root nor branch, which means utter and complete destruction. If you take and destroy, you know, take the root of a plant and its branches out, you have totally destroyed the plant. Uh, and God told the Israelites when they were sent into captivity that he was taking and leaving the roots <laughs> so that they could come back. So this verse very clearly is referring to the end when everything is going to be destroyed. And we look at this, the day of judgment is very clear in, its, in the way it talks about it. And we're going to look through a couple of these uh, verses and, and and examine some of these. So we're going to turn to Daniel 7, verse 9 through 13. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and his hair was like unto the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. The fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, thousands and thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and judgment was set, and the books were open. And I beheld therein, because the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, and I beheld till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. And concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominions taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in a night vision, behold, one like the Son of Man came 
with the clouds of the heaven and came the ancients of days and they brought him before them. So again, this is Daniel talking about the last day, the day of final judgment. And God's wrath burns as with flame. And we know that Peter is going to tell us in, in Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter, or excuse me, yes, 2 Peter, chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Let me get to Peter instead of Corinthians. <laughs> Second Peter. Second Peter 3, verse 6. Whereby the world that was being overthrown with water perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, and perdition of ungodly men. So this, we know that the very end, after the period of tribulation, seven years of period of tribulation, after the millennial kingdom, God will destroy this world with fire. And that's what he tells us. This whole world, this, everything will be totally destroyed. And in Revelation, there will be a new heaven and new earth created that will be purified and brand new. And the last days will be God's final wrath of fire. All right, and this is what, this is what we're seeing in uh, Malachi in this one. In Psalm 50, we see the same picture. And I just want to let you know, this is just something that we see happening in, through the scriptures. Psalm 50, verse 3, Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be a very tumultuous round about him. And he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare the righteousness of God, the righteousness for God is judge himself. Selah. So again, we have this picture. He's going to bring fire of judgment upon this world. And it's going to be, it seems like it's going to be anyway, fairly soon. Because we're watching this world get very evil. And it's been very true over the year, over the over the centuries that various countries have gotten evil and been judged, but it seems now that the whole world is starting to be wrapped up in this. It's there's no shining light of righteousness out there. And we see it over and over. What has always been called good by God's standards is being called bad. What's being called bad is being being turned around and being called good and this is something that has not happened as frequently or as much since the days of Noah Now we've had nations that have gone bad and been judged but we're seeing this as a nation a worldwide phenomenon how bad can it get I don't know I don't know how bad the days of Noah were but it was bad enough that God judged the whole world and it said that every imagination of man was evil and we see this in the world right now that a lot of people have very bad imaginations and this is an amazing thing when you start talking to people and you witness to people and and they'll tell you well it's not it's not no problem uh, you know this is you just you just have to forget about that biblical stuff and start understanding that you know we're we're, we're evolving we're getting we're getting beyond all those superstitious things out there and I don't know if you've, any, if you've heard those kind of things. I've heard a lot of them. I've read a lot of them. 
and you know that I talk to people and you know they're looking looking at things and just saying you know what's wrong with you Christians <laughs> you know you're believing that old stuff you know those old rules that we've grown beyond them who needs marriage you just shack up together until you until you uh, you know, get tired of each other, and then you go find somebody else. You know, you know what, what is this marriage stuff? You know, why is that important? You know, why should you be honest? Why is your word supposed to mean, mean anything? And, you know, it used to be that you could, on a handshake, you would know that a job would get done and get done right. Now you better have an ironclad contract, and even then they're going to try to find their lawyers will try to find a way to get out of the contract. So in, honesty, integrity... Following God and keeping righteous is becoming a place that is not important to, to people. How much worse is it going to get before it's like the days of Noah? I don't know. I don't know how far we've got to go before God says, okay, that's enough. We do know that when it's that time, the church will be raptured and then the tribulation period will start. And we've got, those, we've got that time coming. Isaiah 66 Verses 15 through 18. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with chariots like a whirlwind to render his fury anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Then they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together with, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come and I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. We are yet to see that point. Yet to see this point where God says they will see my glory. All nations. Because he's going to come and he's going to come with vengeance. And that's part of what this fire is all about. And remember when we, read, when we went through the book of Revelation... The whole purpose of all of the tribulation period is not just to be mean to people. Okay? God is not trying to be mean. He's trying to get people to come to him. And in the way he's doing it is through harsh discipline during that period of time. And God even does that in our day. He'll help. He wants people to get to know them through discipline. And the purpose of discipline is to inflict pain to get people to turn back to some to the correct way and that is what discipline is even for our children we're trying to get them to understand that when you do wrong pain pain happens and that pain hopefully keeps them from doing wrong in in the future now with young children a, a spanking is a good way to get them to understand that there there's consequences with old, the older they get some some uh, other discipline forms are better. With my teenagers, I didn't spank my teenagers. They probably wouldn't have done any good. I took privileges away from them, like the use of the car or the use of going out some, at, you know, with their friends. You know. But discipline has to hurt or it's not discipline. It has to be something that says there's pain for doing wrong and, and then justify it and keeps you from doing that wrong action because you look at it and say, I don't want <laughs> the pain. All right. Now, some people are more rebellious than others and need a harder discipline. Some people are very compliant. Uh, I had one son. All he had to do is look at him hard, and he would, he would correct his actions. 
I had another son that took quite a bit of, you know, you had to give a good discipline to him. And so God knows how we will react to these disciplines, but he has a time coming where he is going to bring discipline to the world, harsh discipline. And once a church has been removed, he will unleash. And we, we, we went through those. There's going to be the, the destruction of a one-third of the water and one-quarter of this and you know, all these things that we keep coming through on these disciplines. And God says, I'm sending these not to hurt people. Now, people are going to get hurt. There's, you know, six, I think it was around 66% of the entire population of the world is going to be killed during the, during the plagues of, of Revelation. And that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Two out of every three people will die during the tribulation period. And I've heard people go, well, I, I will, well, when God takes the church, I'll just not take the mark of the beast and I'll be okay. Well, that means you're probably going to, you know, that's a pretty good bet that you're going to die during that period of time. I would rather not be there. Uh, to gamble to be the one-third that live is a pretty uh, big gamble. So I would rather know Christ and be raptured and not have to deal with it. And we'll be with the marriage supper of the Lamb. But God is going to burn. And at the very end, after the millennial kingdom, he's going to destroy this entire, this entire world that we know and create a new heaven and earth, it tells us in Revelation. And it says the Jerusalem will come down from heaven. And it is a structure that is 15, uh, 1,500 miles <laughs> in each direction. It would cover half of the United States. That's a pretty good size city. And it says it's that high, that tall too, which we, in our current ways, could not, hap could not happen. You can't have something go up 1,500 miles and be livable. So there's going to be some new rules in the new heaven and new earth that we can handle. But we look at this and say, God is going to bring the final judgment. And this is, as we've been doing a study in Psalms, God keeps saying that. You know, especially in the first 50 or so Psalms, they, the psalmists were always complaining. Why do the heathen get away with things and not get judged? And how many times do we hear that in, even from Christians or other people? Why doesn't God punish this? Why doesn't God punish that? Well, because God's timekeeping and his bookkeeping are not done. God gives people long enough to come to a decision and many of us say well why is God being so patient well he was patient with us if we really think about it no matter where we come and came to him in our life whether it was very young like I did or as some people I know who are more closer to 40 or 50 60 before they get saved God has been very patient because what do we deserve from him we deserve because of our sin to not even have any chances all of us are in that boat in, unless you got saved on the day you were born, which isn't going to happen because you're not <laughs> going to be able to make that decision, you deserve to be destroyed. And God says, I'm going to be patient. And some people have responded early. Some people, many people, have been right at the end of their life that they finally decided to come to God. Again, that's not a gamble most people want to make because you're not guaranteed any, any length of time. Because how easy is it to be dead as a teenager, we read about it all the time. We hear about it on the news all the time. 
Nobody's guaranteed any length of time. And so God is very patient before he judges. But the judgment is coming. At the very least, you've got the judgment of the white throne judgment, which will send an individual to hell if they reject Jesus Christ. So even if it seems like they've gotten away with it in, in their lifetime, when they stand before God, they will answer. And this is hard for us sometimes to understand. How can God be so patient with people? And it just shows us how patient he really is. As I've explained in, in more than one time, the way that I have been taught to interpret things in my hermeneutics classes is, if it makes sense to take it literally, you take it literal. And not try to spiritualize or, or make it something crazy. Yeah, because if you, if you start with the premise that anything can be spiritualized, then you're basically following a Gnostic Christian point of view that there's special knowledge out there and if you get enough special teaching you'll be getting the secret special knowledges and and once you start going there the words mean nothing that gets to be a very scary place to go to because if you start saying well the words don't mean anything it's whatever I want to the spirit told me that this is what it means and then there's nothing to center on if it makes sense the way it's written I'm going to just believe it. That's the problem with this world now. Everyone's got their own interpretation. And that's happening in the churches. It's happening. And that's been a problem in the church for forever. Even right at the very beginning, there was the Gnostic Christians who said, the physical means nothing. Everything is supposed to be spiritual. The flesh is all bad. So therefore, nothing, nothing is talking about if it's real, you know, if it's a real life, physical thing is, it can't be good. So Jesus couldn't have a body. He had to be a spirit. And they get into all kinds of mystical stuff. And as soon as you start going there, then you're opening yourself up. Jehovah's Witnesses do this with the 144,000 Jewish witnesses in the end days. They go, well, no, they're not real Jews. You know, even though it says 12,000 from each tribe and names the 12 tribes, it's, it's not really Jews, it's spiritual. And again, see, you can understand, as soon as you start saying everything is spiritual and not what it says... All of a sudden, the scriptures become worthless. You might as well just throw the book away because it means whatever you say it means. And so it has to mean what it says unless it's obvious that it's not. Oftentimes, you know, the, you've got different, different views on things. And are there things that can apply in the spiritual? Yes, but let's make sure we look at it first. What does it say? It says this. That's its primary meaning. We look at some of the stories, and we'll, we'll talk about Joseph being a type of Christ because of he went through much of what Jesus did, and we can show you how he was a picture of Christ. But the story is still about Joseph. We do the sacrifices, which were an actual sacrifice they did, but they were also fulfilled in fulfillment of Christ as he fulfilled the sacrifices. We spent a long time in the book of Exodus and Leviticus talking about the tabernacle and how we see the picture of Christ within the tabernacle and all the sim symbols, but we still want to say there was a tabernacle. And if we throw away the actual tabernacle and just, and just work on the symbols, we're having problems. And we want to be very careful about that because it's very easy to try to throw away all of the, all the reality of what it says and try to make it symbols. And that's why I keep bringing up, you know, if it says what it says, that's what it means. Now we can teach that there's a spiritual application or a typology to it, but we need to keep it 
what it says in, in its first stage. Does that help? Verse 2 says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings and shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. So we have here the picture of Jesus coming. Now is this his first coming or his second coming or both? That's a good question. And I don't have the full answer to that. It doesn't seem like this was fulfilled on his first coming. That, that you shall grow up. Total healing was in his wings. But he did bring healing to the world. Okay, He, do, he brought healing to the, to the people around him. And he brought healing to Gentiles. And he brought spiritual healing. So is it possible that it's referring to his first coming? Yes. Is it possible that he's talking about his second coming? When the millennial kingdom... Re, we live in a almost restored time where there's going to be a thousand year reign and the indication is that if you don't live to be several hundred years old, you're, you're a child? <laughs> Probably. So I think this is both. I really think this is talking about both, that Jesus is going to bring healing completely and I think it's more the second coming, but I can see how the first coming is a good, good definition on this. And I'm not going to be dogmatic either way. If somebody wants to say, no, it absolutely isn't, isn't one, I'm not going to sit there and argue with them. I've read, I read different commentaries on it, and they all are all over the place on it themselves. The sun in the scriptures does refer very often to doctrine for God rising up. And I've mentioned this before, the word light, especially in, in, in Psalms, often is indicating doctrine and truth as much as physical light and because I used to go through Psalms and it used to drive me nuts you know because it was like they were worshiping light they were worshiping the sun you know and that's not what it is the the in Hebrew they have this idea that light brings doctrine and truth and so the sun brings that same same emphasis to it and you're right it does say sun and it does kind of make a very funny funny thing but it is Jesus came in and he brought light he brought the truth. He brought doctrine. And I, and I kind of like it. You know, he brings healing. He says, you shall grow, go forth and grow up. And this literally means that they were to, let's see, what was it? They were going to end up springing about, being frisky, being young. And it talks about how the calves were in the stalls. And... If you've ever seen pictures of the newborn, you know, not usually calves so much, but yes, a lot of these cows and, and goats and stuff will spring around and jump around as calves. And he's talking about that activity, that activity of them growing up and being taken care of. Because this is what God does. Do you remember when you first got saved and how free and... and pure everything seemed you just the load of the world had been taken off your shoulders and there was this life that was brought into you I mean I was pretty young at it but I remember just the, the difference that it made when I got saved and I guess the older you are the more it may be <laughs> impacted on but I well, I got saved when I was 10 but I still felt that lightning and I've heard other people that are older when they get saved and they really talk about how when they, God came into their life how everything just lightened up on them I've seen people get saved that, that are much older, and it's like the, you could just see the stress of things falling off of them 
and the shoulders that used to droop are, are a little higher. And I've, there's been times, and I've said this, I've seen people that look 10, 20 years younger after they get saved just because their face changes. <laughs> you know, the, the, the cares and everything just melt away and God gives them that, that uh, ease of life. And so this, he's bringing this out, you know, that we're going to make things easier. Things are going to get easier. And we see this over and over. God gives life. We are born without that filling of God, and we have that emptiness in our life and, and the desire for our life, and then we get saved, and he comes in and fills us. And that, that emptiness that we're looking for is found. Many people over lifetimes are trying to find him, and some people do some very crazy things to try to find God. You know, they'll, they'll get into all kinds of different Sin, sin lifestyles, they'll follow all these different religions. He was searching for God and went through all, a whole bunch of different things. He went into the martial arts, not, not just the exercise part of it, but he actually went into the religious side of the martial arts, didn't find God. He went into looking at black magic, didn't find God, and finally found God and was fulfilled. But, you know, each different person will go through different things seeking after God, trying to find that empty, what will fill that empty spot in their life. And he's saying, I'm right here. And he gives you this great life that he's given you. Verse 3 says, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they, sh they shall be ashes under your feet in, in that day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. I believe that verse 3 is a picture of the millennial kingdom. When we rule with Christ, and he rules with an iron rod. And that's what it says that he does during that period of time in the millennial kingdom. He rules with an iron rod. People are going to be obedient. And imagine trying to be disobedient when God is the king. Okay? You just start thinking about dis being disobedient and start acting on it. And, you know, he could be right there in an instant. And say, no, you're not going to be disobedient today. It's not going to be like the police who, you know, our current day where you have to actually do something and maybe get caught. You've got the omniscient God <laughs> ruling who knows our thoughts. We're going to have our redeemed bodies, our, our new bodies during the millennial kingdom. So we're not going to have any problems. But the ones who have made it through the tribulation period without taking the mark and all of this, they're going to repopulate this earth in a thousand years. And Satan is going to have his last hurrah at the end when they're finally going to have a chance to sin. But can you imagine? We talk about the thought police in this day and age, and we don't really know what we're talking about. But can you imagine the God of the universe? You now you start thinking about sinning, then you get a knock on the door saying, no, you're not going to do that. They're going to be held with a very tight grip, be tread down, crushed. All sin will be crushed during that period of time. All active sin anyway, because thought is sin as well. It is amazing how, as we draw closer to God, we start seeing more and more sin in our life, even though we've worked a lot of sin out of our life. And this is one of the things I've said over the years. The more sin I work out of my life and God shines the light a little deeper, the more I start seeing other sins. And some of those sins are the ones that are, you could probably get away because nobody's going to know about it because they're in your thought life. They're, in your, they're very private. They're still going to have consequences. This is something very important because people will look at somebody who's been walking with God for a long time and say, well, you've got your whole life together, you know, act together. You're not, you're not committing fornication. You're not going out and committing adultery. You're not going out and drinking. You're not going out and 
committing adultery or and all these other things. We don't see you doing anything wrong. You, you tell the truth generally. You're kind to people. And, you're, and you think, if you just knew all the problems that I'm having to deal with and that God is dealing with me in, and we start looking and we start really realizing, as Jesus said, our thoughts are evil. The intents of our heart are evil. Maybe we're doing good at not actually doing them, but the thoughts are still there. The you know, the desires are still there. You know, God's doing a good job keeping them contained, but he really starts showing us how evil we really are at the core of our being. Because we are sinners. And we are evil at our core. Now God comes in, he changes us, he gives us his spirit, he makes us saints as long as we stay in him and stay crucified. And he goes... We have victory. But we all know that we are going to have sins in our life. It would be wonderful if we could just walk around and not have any sins in our life and just be perfect. Not going to happen. And I don't know how wonderful it was because Jesus walked around with no sin in his life and he was crucified for it. So it may not be, even if we could do it, it may not be the greatest thing to, to have happen. But we look at this and we say, there's going to be this time where we will rule and be above everything. Verse 4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. And again, remember that Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And that's meaning that he was telling them, I'm giving you my, I gave you my laws. I gave you the Ten Commandments. I gave you all the other laws. And how many laws are there? Do we, does anybody remember how many laws there are according to the Jews? Six no. 613 laws according to the Jews. And nobody has really contradicted that. I'm pretty sure that they counted correctly. I've never sat down and tried to count them myself, but I'll, I will take their word for it <laughs> that there are 613. Uh, so that's a lot of laws and rules that God gave. And that's the whole point. You know, in Romans, Paul tells us that God saved us the laws to show us that we are sinners. Without the law, we wouldn't know for sure that we were sinners because our, we can start ignoring our conscience. Our conscience would always convicts us as well, but we start ignoring our conscience. But God says, I want to just show you, I want to show you the laws. And this is why the... Um, Witnessing tool, way of the master uses the law, you know, uses the Ten Commandments and what they'll tell, you know, what they'll start with, you know, uh, do you have you ever lied in your life? And you you go, yeah, if I've lied in my life, you know, I've lied at some point in my life. And if you don't, if you say no, you haven't lied, you're lying just by telling them you haven't lied. And so they go, well, that makes you a lie, you know, liar. Uh, Jesus said, if you are angry with a brother without reason, you've committed murder. Have you ever been angry? With somebody without reason oh yeah I've been angry everybody's been angry with somebody somebody you know so you okay you're a murderer and then go into adultery and they go with just those three they go okay you've admitted to being a a lie uh, a liar a murderer and a and an adulterer uh, have you ever stolen anything in, in in your life yeah so you're a thief okay now how do you think you stand up next to God <laughs> and it works really good with somebody who says well I'm, I'm a pretty good person I hope I'm better, you know, my good outweighs my bad. And you start taking them, God's standards, perfection, this is how God sees you. 
And so God's laws are designed to show us that we are sinners and that sinners deserve punishment. And it's very important for us to be able to understand that. And when we're witnessing to people, we need to be able to bring this up to them. We're all sinners. Not you're a sinner, but we all are sinners. We all deserve to be punished, and that means go to hell. And Jesus paid our price so that we can go to heaven. And this is the gospel message. We've covered that so many times. The gospel message is we're sinners. We deserve hell. Jesus paid the price, and we accept him, and, and we can go to heaven. Very simple message. And we need to keep that in mind. When we're sharing the gospel with people, it's not you are a sinner. It's we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. And because if we come with you, we put people on the defense. When we put ourselves in that same place, because we deserve the same thing they deserve, the only difference is I've got Christ in my heart. And because he's in my heart, he has clothed me with his righteousness. And now God sees me as his child, as a perfect child and an adopted child that's, that is going into his presence for eternity. But what I deserve is not what I got. His mercy has given me a new life. But he says, remember my rules. Remember the rules that I've given you so that we know who we are so that we can minister to others. Too many Christians have this attitude when they're witnessing to people of, you know, you're a sinner, you deserve to go to hell. Well, don't forget that you deserve the same thing when you're speaking. And I've heard it. I've heard people do just that when they're witnessing to people. You, know, you, 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 you. you know, what about us? <laughs> we all deserve that, and we don't want to see anybody go to hell. At least I don't want to see anybody go to hell because hell's a terrible place. I don't want to see anybody go there. And God doesn't want to see anybody go there. It is not his will that any should perish. But he will give them what they want. If they want to reject Jesus, his son, who gave him the chance for this life, he will send them to hell because that's what they have desired. So when you hear somebody says, well, how could God send anybody to hell? He's really not sending them. He's given them what they asked for. They've rejected him. When they stand before him at the white throne judgment, God is going to show them every opportunity they, they had to accept Jesus Christ. Nobody will go to hell without knowing that that is what they deserve because he will show them, this is why. This is what you did. This is the time you rejected my son. Over and over again, we've rejected the son. And he's going to point that out to them because it is his desire is for them to fall in love with him and to accept him. And that is our desire for individuals. I want to share the gospel with people, not because I want them to feel bad, but I want them to go to heaven. And I'm going to let them know that without Christ, that is the, goal, the destination. And we want to be able to share this with our family, with, our, with the people we know, our friends, because hell is going to be a lonely place and it's going to be a place where the conscience burns for eternity, where there will be literal burning, there will be darkness. There will be thirst. There will be great desire for God and great pain for eternity. And that's because people chose that destination. Verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day. 
We know for a fact that this was accomplished in John the Baptist because Jesus told us so. <laughs> okay? And we're going to look at a couple of those verses real quick just so we, in case we don't really realize it. In Matthew 11, verse, starting at verse 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered, suffers violence, and violent take it by force. And for all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you receive it, this is Elias, or Elijah, which was for, for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So he says that this was Elijah. He was Elijah. We're going to go into Matthew 17, verse 9. That's good. And as they came from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, uh, mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, where, they, where Jesus was shown before Peter, James, and John, and he shown up, and they saw Moses and Elijah with him. And they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged him, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why do they say that Elijah, Elijah must come first? And Jesus said unto them, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not but have done unto him whatsoever they liked. Likewise, the Son of Man shall suffer. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. All right? And there's a kind of, I want to bring out a point here. He says, truly, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. And then he says, but I say unto you that Elijah is come already. I think that Elijah may very well, just from what Jesus said here, be one of the witnesses that come at the tribulation period that helped bring the gospel. And I believe he's saying John the Baptist was his type, but Elijah's also <laughs> coming. Now, I'm not going to be real strong in that, but he said this in, in here that, he's, that Elijah shall come and that has come. And it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> interesting thing because he's talking about after John the Baptist had been dead is when, when he's talking. So he's saying Elijah shall come and that he has come. So I think he's talking about both. And this is why I say in the Malachi, I think we're seeing both the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus being used in the same manner. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. It's just something I think I see from that. In Mark 17, Mark 9, verse 11, And they asked him, Why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And he answered unto them, Elijah verily comes first and restores all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set to naught? But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it was written of him. And again, we see that same thing. Elijah comes, and Elijah has come. So, and I'm not going to be real strong on this. I, it's just something I kind of have a feeling of as I've read through this, that it might very well be. And in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias is in, the, the angel's talking to him that he's going to have a son, and he quotes this very verse to, to Zacharias, that your son will be the one that comes and comes before the Messiah. So we see 
This is very clearly a definite verse of John the Baptist and possibly a verse into the end, the end of uh, days during the tribulation. And again, I'm not going to be real dogmatic about that one, but I just see that dual, dual statement in there. Everybody always speculates on who the, who the, who the two are in the end days. And, and when we did this on, uh, the Revelation class, we talked a lot about that. Most people believe it's going to be Moses and Elijah. I'm in the school that believes that it's going to be Elijah and Enoch. And I've told you why, because it's appointed unto men once to die. And they're the two, two men in the Bible that never died. I believe it'll be those two. And that's my reasoning on it. Most people will say it's Elijah and Moses because of the miracles to do. But, uh, and, and during that time, I said, I believe that God is the God of the miracles. He's the one that gives them their miracles. So it's not the individuals. I'm not going to make a big deal no matter what. It's, it, to me, it's not going to matter. We're going to be in heaven celebrating with God as, as Christians. So I don't care who the two witnesses are. They're going to be witnessing and they're going to be protected until they're not protected and they die. And then they get to called up to heaven. But we do see here, Elijah was going to come first before Jesus. And we see him being symbolically in, in John the Baptist. And from those words that I say, I think he might actually be the legitimate one that will announce him before the end. All right, and the last verse is verse 6. And he, Elijah, the, the one for Elijah the prophet, shall turn the hearts of the father to their children and the, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I smite the earth with a curse. And this is the one area, even when Zacharias was told this, this was quoted to him by the angel that his son was going to do this. He was going to turn the children. But Jesus also spoke of the time at the end of the age when the children would be against their father and father against their children, mothers and daughters against their mothers. And, you know, we see this, and we're starting to even see this happening where families are starting to be ripped apart and set at edge against each other. And it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse as time goes on. And we saw it also during the picture. Most dictators will do the same thing. They'll try to get their, parent, their kids to turn their parents in for, for not, not agreeing with the, the place. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing with their kids. You know, hey, you, you know, you're, you're the ones that are smart. We need you guys to turn your parents in because they're not obeying the rules. And we're going to see more and more of these things happening as people go. It's already happened in the past and it will happen again in the future. And we will see this whole thing of bringing people back. And so we see this whole picture and this whole chapter that is being talked about. Is it definitely the first, first appearing of Jesus and quite likely also the second coming of Jesus? And that will be at the end of the tribulation period as he sets up the millennial kingdom. And we're going to end here and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at your word and just to see a picture of the end times. And, and we just ask that you give us the grace to go through whatever we have to go through before that time and be able to worship you in all of this. In your son's precious name, amen.